Welcome to Palkus's Next Gen, the show where we discuss issues related to young Portuguese Americans ranging from 18 years old to 35. Our goal is to ensure that our culture strives by focusing on the achievements of the latest generation, with the hope of discovering their secrets to success and continuing to inspire the Portuguese American community at large. Because in our community, Nosh got next and Nosh got now. Hi, so we wanted to welcome you to our uh, the podcast today. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so we wanted to start off with a pretty broad question. Uh, could you just explain to us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, so my name is Dylan Ferreira, um, born and raised in Swansea, Mass., uh, 28 years old. And growing up, I had a, a passion for the outdoors. So I love to fish, I love to hike and just be outside. Um, and then I play, played soccer growing up. Everybody does their rec league and travel teams and high school and all that stuff. So I played soccer a ton. Yeah, growing up, spent a ton of time playing soccer down the Cape on the travel team. Um, and then after soccer, my father and I, we would go fishing at some of the ponds down there for rainbow trout. And that's where I sort of grew a passion for trout fishing. And then as I got older, I was able to explore more sort of on my own and started largemouth bass fishing and saltwater fishing and then got into the hunting world with deer and waterfowl and turkey. And that's where I grew my passion for, you know, the work I do now as a wildlife biologist where I'm helping conserve and manage, you know, wild species that people um, care so much about, whether it's for wildlife viewing, to hunt or to fish, or just, you know, to know that nature is you know, available to people. So then I went to uh, BCC, Bristol Community College. Then after there, I went to UMass Amherst, got my bachelor's degree, and now I'm currently enrolling at uh, URI for my graduate degree. So working full-time for the Division of Fish and Wildlife within Rhode Island, and also uh, a full-time grad student. So hopefully wrapping that up here this year, this semester. Cool, my man. Um, you want to tell me a little bit about like uh, just sort of your, your Portuguese background? Um, yeah. A bit about that. Yeah. So, and I always mix it up because I've always heard a, a bunch of different stories from a bunch of different people. Um, but so on my mother's side, uh, my Pavu, um, he was born in the Azores. Um, but oddly enough, his mother was born in the States and his father was born in Brazil. But I believe they were originally from Portugal, their parents. Um, so I think that's how they ended up meeting back in Portugal. Um, so my grandfather, you know, he came over to the States when he was, I think, 11, um, and then basically started his own construction company, uh, Louis and Ted's Blacktop. Uh, he met my grandmother here. Um, she was actually French, so she was my meme. Um, so that's my mom's side. And then my father's side, I know a little bit less about because uh, they passed a little bit sooner or before I got older and could really get the whole synopsis of their story. But pretty sure they were Portuguese as well. And then my grandfather, my dad's dad, um, he served in World War II, but I believe his parents were, were from Portugal as well. And then I know even less about my grandmother of my dad's side because she passed when I was even younger. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of my Portuguese background. I don't speak Portuguese. I wish I did. Um, I can pick up on it here and there at the family parties as Kayla can attest to. And I chime in every once in a while with an odd word here and there just to 
throw all the aunts and uncles off and be like, wait a minute, what? What did he say? Um, but yeah, that's kind of me in a, a nutshell in terms of my Portuguese, my Portugal descent. Like, oh, we know he's talking, like he knows we're talking about him. That's what, that's what's happening. <laughs> exactly. Um, so when you say like, you know, you hear different stories and stuff, like how you mean? Like, well, like, yeah. yeah. So, you know, when we're, when we grew up, I mean, we spent a ton of time and I say we, I mean, myself, brothers, cousins, you know, we always spent a ton of time with my grandfather. And then we would spend time at our aunt's and uncle's house, you know, my mom's um, sisters and brother's house. And we'd always hear different stories of, you know, when my grandfather came over, you know, what he used to do back on the island. And he was from, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it was like trying to think here, being with a P like St. Perd or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But he used to tell us the stories how he would fish on one side of the island and take a donkey over the island and go sell the fish. And, you know, when he was 11 years old, he got mugged while he was on the donkey and they took all his money. So, yeah, we've heard a bunch of different stories, you know, from when he was younger and stuff. But, yeah. Did that, did that kind of inspire you to pick the career choice that you did? Uh, did you feel like, you know, your family's history with the outdoors and, and, you know, Portuguese in general being so into fishing and all that? I would love to say yes, but I don't really think so, because that's my mom's side, and she is not about the outdoor lifestyle. But on my dad's side, um, his grandfather, or my grandfather, his dad grew up hunting and fishing. So when I would spend, you know, Sunday with my Bavu, who was really Portuguese, we would go to the bakery, Cornerstone Bakery in Swansea, down Ocean Grove, pick up half dozen Mozasalish, and go drop them off and get pop serves for everybody. So that was like the routine for him. And then my dad's side was the outdoor side. You know, my uncle would take me fishing for stripers down the boat ramp. Um, and I spent a little bit of time with my grandfather um, on my dad's side. Um, but he was older, so it was harder for him to get out. But every once in a while, he'd get out in the woods with us. I can remember one occasion where um, the, the story is that a deer, a deer jumped directly over him when he was hunting and he like missed, like right in the backyard. But I was too young to, to remember, so I can't say it's it's word. Um, but that's that's what the legend has it as. And that was like the, one of the last couple of stories I remember with him. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, like I don't know, Andrew, if you have any like sort of animal stories. I'm I'm curious because I have some like pretty wild, like specifically Portuguese animal memories. Um, and unlike Dylan, I have like that didn't like you know. Uh, that didn't endear me to the, to the outdoors in that way. Uh, I'd like to be outside, but you know, on a beach or something. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the only one I got is like, uh, one time I was, you know, I was with my parents when I was a kid, I was at a lake. I grew up in Kansas. So uh, a lot of people are very into the outdoors there. And my dad jokingly said like, you know, stick your finger in the lake, see if something comes up. I put my pinky finger in there and a catfish comes up on it. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably one of my most successful attempts at fishing. <laughs> It's more than I can say. I've never done that before. I always think like the uh, like the feasts and stuff. Like, like I, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. Like when you think about it, like like Matanza de Pulk, like the yeah. like literally a pig is hanging from the ceiling. Like, and it was like where we played gym. Like that's where I played soccer. Like what, like what is this, what is happening? Um, and then they're like, you know, like they would have those like games like back in the day. And I'm not I'm not even sure necessarily. Some like some of them have like stood the test of time. Like I don't know if they're still there, but. I remember like distinctly like going to like like feasts and stuff and 
they would have like games like um like you take like a like a like the ping pong balls and like you try to get it like in the like in a little fishbowl and then you get like mm. win a goal win a goalfish it's, it's basically like the portuguese version of beer pong right like, yeah <laughs> yeah and then like um there was they were always like selling like animals at the feet like birds we had birds one time the story goes that my brothers ate mine but then i was told that's it that was false so i was lied to as a child for that it was like this is this is like deep dark memories for me <laughs> i'm kind of glad that's false yeah and then it's like um and then of course like the uh, the rabbit, like we, you know, my grandparents both had rabbits. So I was like a little kid. I used to love animals back then, Dylan. Now he sees me jumping when the dogs are at the family parties, right? So he just, True. he just laughs at me, but I do. I, do. I was like, yeah, I was like big with, big with the, uh, the rabbit. So I'd go over there and like to go pet the rabbits, feed the rabbits, this and that, whatever. And then, you know, one time I go over, it was like Easter and I go to the, the back shed, like where they kept the rabbits and Rabbit. No rabbits. So I go to my, I literally go to my cousin, and I'm like, "What happened to the bunny?" Like, and he's like, "On the plate, they're eating it." I was like, mortified, <laughs> absolutely mortified. Yeah. But yeah, I find it interesting. Like, you know, you're into like hunting and stuff like this, but like also obviously like conservation and everything else. So I wonder, like, you know, like, do you ever feel like those two things are opposed? And if not, like, how 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 do you like kind of navigate that? You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I'll echo the rabbit story before I dive into that. We had the same thing happen. We got rabbits. It was like the coolest thing. We're out petting the rabbits, enjoying it. And then a week later, I was like, where's the rabbits? It's like, oh, they got out. They must have ran away. It's like, well, what are we having for supper? Rabbit. It's like, oh, no, no, they're not the same. So I can only imagine how many times that has happened in the Portuguese uh, household. But to, to get to the question of like hunting and conservation, I mean, they are. I think from somebody who doesn't really understand it and is just on the outside and the periphery of the hunting industry or the hunting world, I mean, I could see how they're like complete opposites. It's like, wait a minute, you meaning to tell me that you hunt and, you know, you shoot deer and turkeys, but you love them. So you want them to stick around. Like they're just so, they're so opposites. It's like, how can that be? But I mean, the way I looked at it was, you know, I grew up, you know, loving animals. I still do to this day more than anything. I love watching deer and watching turkeys. Um, and being able to hunt them is a way in my eyes to basically respect them. I mean, in order to harvest one successfully, you have to know what that animal does day in, day out, the time of year, the season. You really have to understand what that animal does. Um, so you grow a, a really strong bond and respect with the animal. And not at the individual basis. I know I think that's a big thing, is that I think a lot of hunters and conservationists will look at animals at a population scale. Because for deer, for example, you know, there's a lot of deer running around. And if there's too many of them, they can have impacts, negative impacts like deer in vehicle collisions or you know, forest impacts, you know, the regeneration of forests, their composition can change so you don't have certain tree species which other wildlife depend on. Um, so hunters and conservationists in my mind can see the grand scheme, the big ecosystem level and say, okay, there's an overabundance of deer or just enough deer where hunters can harvest some and not impact the total population of deer. So that the, so that the deer and the species that maybe depend on deer to potentially, you know, the way deer, eat the forest and they browse on certain species, 
you know, that affects the forest composition. So if there were no deer, they would just be like a very thick forest everywhere. And some species don't like a very thick forest. And if there were too many deer, there'd be like no forest because the deer would eat everything. So the deer in my mind, I, they kind of serve as a, a balance to the ecosystem. So, you know, and in addition to just the ecosystem services that hunters provide by keeping population levels down is they provide the majority of funding for wildlife conservation today. So, you know, the way my job is funded is through the Pittman and Robertson Act. And what that was, was early on, I, I'm upset that I can't think of the date off the top of my head. Um, I wanna say it was the forties or the sixties, but it was a long time ago. The hunters came together and said, hey, look, you know, we wanna protect species and the habitat that they live in so they persist through time. And they created the Pittman and Robertson Act, which puts a 11% excise tax on hunting and fishing equipment. So guns, ammos, and tree stands and stuff like that. So the hunters pay this tax that's really going to the manufacturers that they pass on the, to the consumers. And that money goes to the US Fish and Wildlife Service, the federal government. And then they reallocate those funds to each state and saying, okay, hunters bought X amount of guns and ammo. We generated this amount of money. This state gets X dollars. And there's a formula in which they do that, which I believe is based off of land mass and uh, hunting licenses, I think. Um, and there's like minimum requirements and there's a bunch of paperwork involved. But basically these hunters and sports shooters are funding the wildlife research that happens to keep species around and to keep them at like sustainable levels. So it's not like, uh, you know, like your typical preservation group, you know, hunters are using the land, but we're doing so at a sustainable use. So, you know, it, it's done out of, uh, I think, respect for the land and for the animals. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, controversial for a lot and can be hard to understand. So it's a question I get a lot. Yeah, so actually, that actually reminds me a lot of uh, an author I really like, Wendell Berry. He talks a lot about how cons conservation is all about like how we use the land. It's not about like just leaving something aside without ever interacting with it. Uh, do you think that maybe this could lead to like kind of new coalitions around environmental issues, or maybe help see help people see like all of the all of the sides of like outdoors activities and what that might look like? Because I think. Sometimes we get caught up with labels and all that stuff when we think like, oh, hunters means one thing, conservationists means something else. Uh, but instead, this seems like a really sustainable model where people can get thinking about the environment, maybe break through some of those cultural, you know, stereotypes that people have. Yeah, there's definitely like a ton, I shouldn't say a ton, but there's more and more conservationist groups that are kind of based around hunters um, that are, I think, representing hunters in a very good and positive way. You know, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Association, or commonly known as BHA. You know, they're a great uh, organization, nonprofit organization that, you know, stands up for what's right for what's first off wildlife. You know, they put wildlife and conservation first, and then they stand up for hunters. So, yeah, there's the, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, um, Trout Unlimited. You know, there's a ton of organizations and most of what happens is there'll be like for Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or Ducks Unlimited, it's usually like species based or National Wild Turkey Federation. So like that group of hunters sort of forms their own group and kind of specializes on that species. 
Um, and then you have the other groups like BHA, um, and they're kind of just an overarching group that oversees almost everything and a lot of policy and public land um, regulations, which is critical for everybody today, you know. Public land is decreasing every day. I mean, every every year I, I would hate to see the numbers of the amount of land that's getting developed um, in the places that we lose that we can go and explore. Um, so they're doing all they can to protect that to make sure that it's here for future generations to come because you know, next week I'm gonna go to Colorado on an elk hunt on public land that I own, you own, Kayla owns. Anybody can go whenever they want and enjoy it. And BHA is a big component of keeping public lands public, you know, for everybody to use for not just for hunting, but for any sort of recreating. Yeah, I'm, cur I'm curious, like, you know, obviously like your passion for the outdoors was like pretty early on and like with being around your family and everything else, but like, how'd you know, like when this was like a career path? Like, I don't, people when they usually they're, like young kids, like when they're like, oh, I like the animals, I want to be a vet. Like that's always what people go to. <laughs> I'm curious, like, when were you like, oh, I want to be like a wildlife biologist? When did you even know it was like a thing? Yeah, so it's a good question because it's not the path I chose early on. You know, I went to Diamond Regional Vocational in Fall River. Um, and I went into the, to be an electrician. Um, so I played soccer growing up and then I was like, well, after high school, I'll be an electrician. And I did it for a summer and I was like, eh, this isn't really for me. I'm going to try and play soccer professionally. <laughs> um, I know, crazy. So uh, trying to think of the way I did it. Actually, no, I went to BCC for, to be an electrical engineer. Um, and then I did that for two years, hit Calc 2. And I was like, I'm bowing out a calculus still. I thought I was good at math. And I was like, I'm not good at math. And then I was like, oh, you know something? Maybe I'll play, you know, professional soccer. Like I was never the best kid on the team. But, you know, I thought if anybody tries hard enough, they can do it. So I played, got recruited by like a couple random, you know, colleges, you know, D2 and D3 and stuff like that. And um, tried out for a semi-pro semi team in Vermont. Didn't make it. And then I was sort of like, all right, well, I'm going to switch my major to like sports management or something, you know, in that career field. And then I got a phone call from, this was during the summer. I got a phone call from one of my uncles, one of my dad's brother who grew up hunting and fishing. I was like, hey, DEM is hiring a seasonal technician for a summer to do like waterfowl surveys. And you basically get to go out on a kayak every year. I mean, every day and look for geese and ducks. And I was like, I like to kayak and fish. Like, give this a whirl and then like when I got that job I was like this is this is the gig for me like I'm not good enough at soccer to make a pro so this is this is the way this is where I'm going to fall and honestly like looking back at it now I think I'd be I'm happier now than I would have been playing soccer professionally I mean it would have been cool to have all the, the fame and maybe the money that comes along with it although MLS isn't like uh top notch but um yeah I mean I definitely would never have made it internationally but the MLS was like my site and I was like yeah that's not going to happen so I love what I do now I wouldn't trade it for anything and have you seen a lot of uh have you seen like any other Portuguese Americans in kind of the wildlife biology space um do you know any others because I figure if if you do you know Rhode Island's the place to be yeah yeah Rhode Island's definitely the place there's a couple uh couple Portuguese guys in the in the workspace with me um but it's not something where I would say um, they're overwhelming. I can only think of one off the top of my head, one of my supervisor, 
Um, yeah, there's not a ton of them. I, I, like to me, I don't know. I hate to say it, but like I don't see like um, like nationalities. Like I don't know. I'm kind of just like, oh hey, how's it going? Like I have one person who's got a like a very Polish last name, so like it's like okay, that guy's not Portuguese, but everybody else names are just names nowadays. So I'm like, I don't know what you are, but yeah, I'd say there's only one that I can think of. And we do talk about the feasts a lot, and cherries and sweet rice, mother sausage, sweet bread. Um, I thought it was pretty cool, like looking at like a little bit into your background, a little bit more, and uh, like seeing like some of the stuff you're doing with like with like youth as like mentors and stuff like that. Yeah, I was thought like if you could like tell us a little bit about what exactly. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the Division of Fish and Wildlife, we have some youth programs. Um, the biggest one right now, I'd say, is the waterfowl hunt. We've done that for six or seven, eight years. I don't even know, to be honest. We've been running it for a while. I never led it, but when I was a seasonal technician for the waterfowl biologist, I was, I think I was there for the first year of that hunt. And it's like, like probably one of the most exciting parts of my job. Is, you know, I love the outdoors and to be able to pass that tradition on to a young kid who is maybe new, maybe he's not too sure about it, like has some, you know, un, maybe uneasy about it, maybe timid because they're like, I don't know if I can shoot an animal, which is totally fine. But to be there and, and to help walk someone through it is awesome. And like having a kid being able to harvest their first goose or first turkey is like, it is the biggest like joy you, like I can have. So we look forward to that every year. So we have our we had our first ever youth turkey hunt, um, actually with Matt Light. He, his foundation helped put that together. Huge success. Um, and it's just I don't know. It's so much fun to sort of give back to the younger kids because I mean they're so impressionable and to be able to to reach them and kind of show them the ropes, you know, on a positive side and not let people paint hunters in a bad way before they kind of make up their mind of whether they want to do this or not. I like, I like to think that we expose them to it in a positive light. And if they don't want to do that in life, that's fine. But they can look back and say, hey, I tried it once with some crazy bearded kid from Rhode Island. And uh, it was about blast. And he seemed like a really nice guy. So hunters must be cool. But it just was never for me. So yeah, that's kind of, I love it. It's a blast. How old are those kids? Those kids are usually like anywhere between 12 and 15. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious because like you're like you're someone who strikes me as like the generational divide isn't a divide for you and like because personally like I've seen you interact with with children and stuff and and obviously talking a little bit about like this mentorship program that kind of thing and I also know like how tight you are with your grandfather and everything like that um and I wonder like you know if that's if if being outdoors or if you know being with with nature, with, you know, the animals, let's, I don't know if that like influences like the way you interact with people and like, you know, and like in terms of like, you know, differences for like, for example, for age. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I literally will spend, like I was fishing with uh, our cousin uh, Marcos and uh, Rafi the other day and Rafi's, I don't know, 35. Marcos is his son who's five-ish. Beth and rough. Don't, don't be mad if I get it wrong. He's a he's a toddler, you know. Um, and then I go fishing with my 85-year-old grandfather. It's just like, you know, some people have a high skill level at something, some people have no skill level, and that's okay. So 
I like to be there to help facilitate them interacting with the wild and like growing to appreciate it and kind of maybe teach some things along the way. Not to say that I don't learn anything because I'm always learning from people. Um, and especially teaching new people, you know, something that they've never done before, you know, it kind of helps you kind of hone your skill and learn a little bit more and think about things in a different light. But yeah, being able to spend time outdoors with people of all ages, all groups is like such a great way to meet people, spend time with people. You're away from the, the day-to-day grind and it's just you and, and nature. And you can really, you know, disconnect from the, the crazy life that everybody lives now. So I love it. I think that's really important. Like I sometimes, especially during this pandemic, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by like the zoomification of everything. Uh, how would you suggest somebody like, you know, get more involved with the outdoors? If, for example, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who are afraid of bugs who don't want to get sunburnt. Um, you know, a lot of people have many hangups about going outside. So what are some of the suggestions you have for like, you know, bringing people along, um, kind of giving people a chance to experience that on their own terms? Yeah, I'd say, you know, YouTube is like great for somebody who like may want to even like as simple as like just go fishing like to me it's like a normal activity i just close my eyes and i just go fishing i don't really think about it anymore or for somebody who's never done it before you know it could be a daunting task there's like bait and hooks and line and it's like what if i get hooked and what do i do with the fish after and it's like all these things i don't think about anymore and like youtube's a great resource you know for stuff like that and in addition to like the public domain kind of YouTube side of things. You know, the Division of Fish and Wildlife, we have our hunter education department whose main goal is to help educate people on how to hunt and fish. So we have a ton, ton of free resources online. We have classes on, you know, land navigation, how to deer hunt, how to turkey hunt, a bunch of these things. And that's all right on our website. So anyone could go to, you know, Rhode Island DEM, Division of Fish and Wildlife, just Google that, look for hunter education and you know, you're going to find a, a, a wide variety of resources for somebody. Or you could just, you know, send me an email. My email is on the website, I would imagine. And I'd be happy to point somebody in the direction of, you know, help them get to where they want to be. And on a similar note, like you mentioned that you've learned a lot by teaching others. Uh, so what's been kind of one of the most important, like, lessons, not necessarily just in, like how to do something, but really like a life lesson that you've gotten from being able to, like, come together across generations in the outdoors? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I like to think just to be patient is the biggest one. You know, just, you know, everybody's always in a rush trying to get something done right away. It's just take a breath, relax. It's going to happen. It may not happen right now, whatever it is, but put your mind to it and just, and just be patient, work hard. And that's all you can really do. And, and it helps. I think being patient help like the way I look at things now is, you know, being patient, it helps you. I don't know if accept failure is the right word, but if you're patient, it's like, I'm looking to buy a house like right now as we speak and like, we haven't gotten one yet. So you can look at every day as a failure. Like oh, I haven't gotten a house yet. Today was another failure. But the way I look at it is if you're patient and you're willing to wait and work hard and just keep at it, but be patient, you know, you're never going to fail because you're always going to strive to. And that's, that's how I succeed. I mean, every time you go fishing or deer hunting, you're not going to catch what you're after. So if you're patient, it's like, okay, maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow, 
you know, you just got, it helps you keep a very positive attitude going through life of, you know, not getting down if something doesn't go your way. So that's kind of how I like to just, I always tell Allison, I'm like, just be patient, relax. Like, we'll, we'll get a house. Don't worry. Or like the fish are going to come. I get, yeah. Do you have like any advice for people that might be interested in, in becoming a wildlife biologist? Yeah. So the division of fish and wildlife, again, on our website, we have a volunteer coordinator who manages volunteer opportunities. So anybody from kids to adults, people who are retired in school, reach out to our volunteer coordinator, Jennifer Brooks, and basically be like, Hey, like I'm interested in X, whatever you're interested in or nothing at all. And just like, yeah, like, I want to know like what this gig is all about. I want to find out how I can help. And that's like your best way for one to figure out if you like it or not. And two, get your foot in the door because then you're going to work with somebody usually like myself as a biologist. Um, and we can be like, Hey, like Kayla did a great job catching and wrangling geese today. Like she should maybe apply as a seasonal position like I did. And then from the seasonal position, I got a, a full-time position. So, you know, volunteering in any way you can, you know, with the state agency is a really good way to get that ball rolling in like a wildlife biologist career path. Um, so, yeah. You feel like, like, and this might be a stupid question, but again, I'm just going to admit my ignorance. Um, like, do you feel like you're like you working with geese? Like how much of that can be extrapolated to like working with deer? Do you know what I mean? Like a yeah. lot, a lot. Yeah. Working with, if you work with, deer or geese or fish or rabbits a lot of the work that we do is similar like a lot of times we're counting individuals or we're marking them or we're tracking them so maybe the field techniques may be different of like how to catch a goose versus how to catch a deer but a lot of the equipment maybe that we're using may be the same whether it's you know a gps collar or a gps or a vhf transmitter you know, some of them go on the neck like a dog collar. Some go on their, for geese, they go on their ankles. For some birds, they get glued on their back. Um, so once you kind of work with one species, you know, it, it, you can definitely, don't think of yourself as being pigeonholed to that one species. Like I started my career working on waterfowl and then I worked on pine martin and I worked on deer and I did some bat work and fish work and a little bit of moose work and some links work so there was like camera traps and collaring and banding and gps tracking and yeah the the field is so wide i mean you could do anything and i think if you know someone like myself are looking at to hire somebody we want to be able to see that that breadth of experience to know that like all right whatever we throw at this person they can pick it up and run with it and so then what do you what do you guys do with that data afterward yeah so I'll speak specifically, at least for what I'm doing right now. So for deer, one of the ways that we want to monitor them is to monitor the population. So when hunters go out, they harvest the deer. They have to report back to us and say, I shot X deer and it was a male. It was 150 pounds. It had good overall condition and I shot it in Tiverton. So we can take data like that. And combine it with other data where during a certain time of the hunting season, hunters have to actually bring their deer physically to people like me, biologists. And we collect a little bit more information, you know, very specific weight, how 
thick a deer's antler is, how old they are by looking at their teeth. And we use that data to sort of get a population demographic. And we take that data and we plug it into a model. And then that, with some other stuff, and that model will spit back uh, a population estimate for the state. And that's just like one instance of how hunters are helping conserve wildlife. Because without that data, we may not know how many deer are in the state because we can't go around and count every single one. We need some other way to sort of get a grasp at it. Yeah, I'll keep it real. I had no idea like the teeth was a was the way you, yeah. you got to eight. I'm like, listen, I remember, you know, the, the counting the rings for the tree. That's about as far as I got. Yeah, so the way you age a deer is basically you look how much their teeth are worn down because they, you know, eat their food and then they'll regurgitate it, chew it, and it's back and forth. So they grind and grind and grind. So we just look at how worn their teeth are. And then one of the ways that we um, like check ourselves is the front incisors are sort of like a tree. We'll take the teeth out and we'll send them off to a lab and they'll basically take cross sections and they'll be able to tell exactly how old it is. The way we do it is good for, you know, fawns, one and a half, two and a half, three and a half. But once you're like four and a half older, it becomes really difficult because then they just become like almost flat. And it's like, well, this one's really old because she has no teeth. But we'll pull that, you know, those front incisors out, send it off to a lab. And the oldest one this year was 15 and a half years old, which is pretty neat. And to think of being a deer, you know, in the wild for 15 and a half years, it's like, it's impressive. Oh, like, how's the average age? No. I would say, in the, so in the wild, I'd say most males are going to be three and a half, you know, two and a half, three and a half. And then most females are going to maybe hit five and a half, maybe. Um, but that's like the oldest they'll reach, you know. Yeah. But there's always, you know, the occasional 15 and a half year old whole girl running around. Right. <laughs> you said like, um, you use like GPS and stuff. I, I, don't, I mean, yeah, so you're young, but like, you know, in the days before GPS, do you know how they used to do this stuff? If you don't, it's okay. Yeah. So right now there's two that I'm aware of, there's two collars that a lot of people use. There's a GPS collar and a VHF collar. So the GPS collar is exactly that. It's a little GPS and it can send signals up to the satellite and send it back to us and we can find out where it is exactly. So for a moose project I was working on or helping out with actually, I was volunteering, come to think of it. Um, when the moose would die, it would send a signal right to the biologist that was working on it. And then he would send a note over to the technician we would all get together, head out into the field, and we'd perform a field necropsy to see what killed the moose. The, the moose. And most of the time, it was from winter ticks. You know, the winter ticks are so bad on moose. So that's like the best collars that you can get, like real-time data. And then there's the VHF collar, which basically sent, it's VHF stands for a very high frequency, and all it does is it sends a signal out. So you have to use a, a antenna or a receiver and go out and basically look for the signal, and it'll beep be and basically so to figure out where it is you can't just look at it from one direction so you have to triangulate it so you start here and then you drive around to the other side of it there and then around the other side of it and then you can take a bearing of all of the strongest readings and you triangulate where it is so i did that and those collars are a lot cheaper but they're more work you know if you're looking for fine scale habitat use and that's one of the things is it all depends what you want to know 
Like if you want to know where this animal is living, like what is their home range, GPS collars are great. If you don't need to know that and you only want to know if it's alive or dead and you can check on it every couple of days, you know, the VHF collars are fine because both collars typically when an animal stops moving for X amount of hours that the biologist can program into the collar, it will emit a different signal. So like when I'm working with our rabbit program, we'll go out, we'll check the collars and it's usually like 60 beats per minute is the deceased, whereas the alive is 30. So alive would be like beep, beep, beep. So like, okay, a rabbit's good. And then you check a different rabbit, it's like beep, 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 beep. You're like, ah, oh, something happened to the rabbit. So then you would go in and potentially see what happened to it. That sounds pretty challenging. Is that is that the hardest part of your job, you would say? No, no, no. That's the fun part. <laughs> Uh, it can be challenging to specifically locate the, the collar, you know, because these rabbits, you know, everything's a predator. So a lot of times maybe a weasel or a mink can, you know, drag them into a hole and that's where the collar ends up. Um, and we were doing that for snowshoe hare once in Vermont. And I have a picture. I'm like, the snow is above my head right down in this hole. I'll have to send Caleb a picture. I do have it because um, I was like, you need a picture of this. Um, he just wants to send me pics. You see this? That's it. That's it. Straight from the gram. No. Uh, so yeah, it's that's fun. It can be challenging at times, but I would I wouldn't say it's the hardest. You know. What is the hardest, if you don't yeah. mind my asking? Yeah, I kind of I kind of figured that was the next question. <laughs> um, hmm. the hardest part of the job. I'd say the hardest part is. I hate to say it, like, but probably dealing with people who don't really understand or care about wildlife. It's like, I have this coyote in my backyard. I don't really care about it. I just want you to come get it and take it away from me. And it's like, it's just hard. Those people are hard to deal with. It's like, to me, it's like almost sad. Like they have that view on wildlife. It's just like, this is a, a nuisance all the time. And I get coyotes can cause problems, especially if you have young dogs or cats, like that's totally fine. But there's things that homeowners can do to reduce conflicts with, you know, wildlife. Um, so yeah, that's the hardest part is probably in, can be dealing with the public, but at the same time dealing with the public, like with the kids, it's like the best part of the job. So depending on who you're working with, it can be challenging. So drop us some knowledge, like what can homeowners do in dealing with wildlife? Yeah, I'm trying to get learned here. All right, um, so for like coyote specifically, keep your garbage inside until it's like trash day. Don't feed feral cats. You know, keep all of like anything that raccoons, foxes, or coyotes can eat can just draw them to your property. And the problem is it's not just you specifically, it's you and your neighbors. You know, today in society where there's houses everywhere, you know, if just one person is doing that and your four neighbors aren't, you know, just you alone isn't going to solve the problem. So it really needs to be most of the time a neighborhood approach of like, hey, we have a coyote problem. We need to like bring in our food and we can't be leaving food out, you know, for old, the old cat that roams, roams the backyard every day. So yeah, that's, a, that's one for coyotes. Um, I'm curious, do you have like any like, like memories of like, I mean, whether it, you know, was with your Portuguese family or, you know, just with family in general, like of, of you felt like, oh, this is like a, 
like a deep appreciation of nature, like a, like a specific memory or something like that. Like uh, I kind of laugh like uh, one of the this Portuguese Canadian like comedian Mike Reader, super funny. Oh, I love him. The plug for him, right? <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> he was like he has this like he has this bit that's like his he's walking with his dad. And he's like you know the Portuguese parents they taught us like appreciation for nature. They brought us appreciation for all these things, music, this and that. And he's like saying like. He's like, you like that grass? You feel the you feel the grass in your toes? You know what I mean? Like all this. He's like, you like it? And he's like, yeah. Why? And he's like, because some people don't have toes. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so like, um, I'm just curious. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be something funny, but like something that, like, made you feel like, oh, this is, this is where the this this is memory like something you like treasure that you feel like, oh, this was a deep appreciation for nature. That I mean, we, there's a lot of people that like nature. Not everybody becomes a wildlife biologist. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think like the biggest thing that happens in my life time and time and time and time again is we go out fishing and we're catching fish. And it's like, when you bring those fish back to eat, it's like, you do not waste anything. Like nothing goes to waste. It's like, we're not just going to catch these fish and have a little bit and like throw the rest out or let it go to waste. And to me, that just is the utmost respect for the animal or for the fish. It's like this fish or an animal gave its life for you to eat it's like you should use as much of it as possible and that has just repeatedly been the case you know through my entire life of just utilization of the entire you know the fish whether it's you know black sea bass striper scup you know it doesn't matter you use all of it and to me like that's most important to me because now i like i enjoy getting my own food that's wild and sustainable because it's it's definitely healthier um so to me like that's awesome and you know i i don't take that lightly because not i think a lot of people like to live that way but don't have the opportunity to or don't know how so when i have i have the opportunity to because i've just done it all my life so every time i catch fish if i'm not going to eat it i like i call up our uncles and it's like hey do you want fish and it's like yes i want fish please bring them now and it's like i'm super happy to you know provide you know that wild and local food to you know my family members so yeah definitely just like using what you catch it's like super huge for me and do you have like any favorite recipes i mean i know i've had some pretty good venison steaks in the past yeah um i would say like i love just like on an open fire like fresh venison just like a little bit of salt and pepper maybe a little bit of garlic powder is like one of my favorites like one of my go-to's and then for fish like Deep fried black sea bass is like my number one go-to. Like I just absolutely love it. And have you been back to uh to Portugal to have some of the seafood there? Yeah, um, we went to. Great question. They, I, I didn't tell. I didn't share that. I didn't share that. <laughs> Andrew, yeah. I love you. I love you, Andrew. Yeah, we went to uh, went to the St. Michael's. Um, what was that, Kayla? Three years ago. I know you didn't get to go. You know what I'm saying? That that's that I just apologize. hurts. That hurts. That hurts. I wish you were there. I wish you were there. That's how I remember. I'm like, why isn't Kayla and Colby here? I'm like, what is the problem? We need to do back and do a like a farrier trip. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, going back to Portugal or going to Portugal for the first time was incredible. I mean, the octopus was like the best I've ever had. I was like, this is like awesome. And like I've had it here, and I don't obviously catch my own octopus. I don't even think we have octopus around here. I don't even know how you would catch that. <laughs> I think you like 
go on the beach and guess yeah i think you use your hands honestly like a lot of people i'm sure people spearfish farm and stuff um sure. i don't know that's one thing i don't know much about but yeah the like the octopus was like incredible it was the best i've ever had so yeah i want i'm already i miss it i want to go back because you're on the island and stuff did you see any of the like like animals that like they say are there but not necessarily like could be found in the united states or anything like that nah we yeah. didn't see much for animals to be honest like i was looking like yeah. I, I can't think of anything that i was like oh my god you look at x like there's a lot of cattle donkeys um dogs all over the place you know like that's the only thing i can think of that like stuck out to me was like cattle everywhere corn everywhere your occasional pineapple farm um yeah banana farms that was cool like I was thinking, like um, I had done a little bit of research on the well research. I was reading other people's real research, like you do, you know, like you do real research. I I just read other people's things and then <laughs> I try to find what's interesting to me. But um, <laughs> but I had seen like um, like if you go like to Bristol, like Cold State Park, one of the bigger parks, um, in in that town, like in Rhode Island, like uh, you can find like slippery like limpets or something. So they're like small like limpets, but like. You know, in the Azores, like uh, the limpets are like they appear totally different, and like they're actually like I think they're like endangered, and so like you're not able to like technically you're not allowed to just kind of right out right out the water um, sort of thing. So it's like lopage is the word in, yeah. in Portuguese, right? Yeah, I didn't know I didn't know limpets until I was. Until I just... could, until I could Google and thought about it, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what that meant. So like, I didn't know yeah. what the English word was until you did the translation. Right. So I like had to do some like learning about this, but um, I was like, that's why I asked about different animals because I was just curious. Like in my mind, because um, I used to eat the ones at the town beach, mm -hmm. and then we'd go and get them, kind of thing, right out the water, rocks, whatever. <laughs> and then uh, like, like one time they got like. Um, this is another plug from Portugalia and Fall River, um, sort of like Portuguese supermarket. They, my parents got like these limpets from like the Azores. I think it was like, I think it was Azorian or it was Madeira, but anyway. So my mom like comes home and she's like, oh, you know, you like these? And I was like, what are those? And she's like, it's lopish. And I was like, those aren't lopish. Like I didn't, so <laughs> yeah. So I was just like curious, like, I mean, it's weird. It's weird to me that like this thing that we think of as like looking a certain way, it looks totally different. You know, obviously we know like animals in general, they evolve. Yeah. Obviously, right. But like, um, I don't know. Uh, that's why I just sort of random question, but. It's yeah. kind of cool too. Like the differences is you guys are mentioning like, you know, banana trees and like pineapples. And I'm like, you know, my parents are from the continent. I'm like, that's completely another world for me. <laughs> like that's, That doesn't exist there. Maybe in, maybe in the Elgato, but outside of that, really nothing of that. Yeah. Oh, my parent, my bro my father always talks about like, oh, there's not like, you get the fruit right off the tree. Like that's, he's like the fruit here. And I'm like, and now I've sort of come around to it. Cause I'm like, why are these strawberries lasting four days? But you know, um, but yeah, I think it's just totally a different, that island life. Anytime. And the thing is, is like, then they move to the, you know, the Northeast where it's freezing. Every time the snow comes, I'm like, I'm, I'm supposed to live on an island. That's my blood. You know what I mean? Um, yeah but yeah i don't know do you think like any of that like 
did you did you feel more in touch when you were over there like with nature i just find like oh, yeah. all those pictures of something else like all the green and beautiful water you know yeah especially like when we're like way up on the mountain like looking over sexy dodge i probably said that probably butchered it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, um, that's pretty good all right we'll go with that um and it's just like looking over that and it's just like man this is awesome it's like you just overlook it and it's just like forest and agriculture and these native ponds and you're just like ah, it just feels nice like it helps that you can get the elevation and kind of see that vast landscape that we don't have here um and you get a little bit more of a way to appreciate things because you can see it and it's a little bit it's almost more tangible whereas here it's just flat ground like your neighbor your trees so it's tough but yeah being out there it was like cool to be able to see the landscape and just kind of sit back and just relish in it it might not be might not be any volcanoes in Rhode Island, but I'm sure there's some uh, some pretty good spots. So you know, without revealing any secrets here, like what are some of your favorite spots to fish, to hunt in the state? Mm. So since I live in Mass, although I work in Rhode Island, I spend most of my time in like Swansea, Somerset, Rehoboth. Um, but I spend a fair amount of time in you know South Coast Rhode Island, Exeter, West Greenwich, Narragansett. That's where our office is. Um, I'd say the best places for me that I enjoy fishing is like the Mount Hope Bay. You know, there's a great striper run there, you know, early in the spring and late in the fall. Um, and then hunting, I mean, there's great hunting opportunity across the north, across the northeast. You know, people may not think of it as that because it's the northeast and it's not, you know, Montana, but I'm sure most people can attest there's deer everywhere. So it's, uh, yeah, there's plenty of opportunities you know, across the entire state, you know, to deer hunt or to turkey hunt. You've been, you've been like a bunch of places though, like, right? Like yes. Like yeah. So like just the hunt alone, I've been to New Mexico and Colorado. Um, but then to work, I've been to Quebec, yeah, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, Staten Island, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Staten Island. Yeah. There was a deer project there trying to reduce the population. Yep which is not what you think of for wildlife. But yeah, there's a lot of deer on Staten Island. So doing some research there, Long Island, doing sea duck work. Uh, yeah, locally, I like being on the Mount Hope Bay towards Spar Island at sunrise. It's a nice spot, it's a nice view. You get the Braga Bridge right there, mm -hmm. Mount Hope Bridge on the other side. So uh, I like being on the bay. I think like, obviously you talked a little bit about like your passion for soccer and so I just want to sort of circle back to that obviously uh we know that's big in our culture so um tell us a little bit about like sort of your memories and how those two things sort of intertwine if at all and uh yeah watching playing that kind of thing yeah grew up playing soccer it was kind of just like I think like every kid does around here you play your rec league and it's like you're parents either are Portuguese or you're halfway decent you end up playing for a travel team it's just kind of how it goes um so I played town um and I traveled a little bit I never played for any like the premier teams just because I wasn't good enough to get like a free ride my parents like we ain't paying for that it's like it's crazy um so yeah I did travel I did a little bit of rec and then I'll say you know middle school high school two years of college um to be honest, I don't watch a ton of soccer. I don't watch a lot of TV just because, like, if I'm home, I'd rather be, like, occupied, whether I'm tinkering with my fishing stuff or actually fishing or hunting. Um, 
but yeah, like I still to this day, I'll play once a week, Friday mornings before I work. Um, our cousin Matthew plays. He plays with us every once in a while. Kayla should come out tomorrow morning, 630 in Warwick. Thank you. Uh, what uh, what position did you grow up playing, and do you play the same one now? So I would play typically striker or sweeper, nice. just because I was like semi fast. Ones, though. Yeah, Kayla, don't give me that look. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, no, I, I was fast, so that's all I had. So fast up top, and then fast to make up for my mistake on sweeper. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to like make up for not invite my cousin on here and say she's a better soccer player than you are. I can take that. She did win skills skills competition of the year or whatever that she doesn't let us forget about. Yeah, no, I just that reminds me how much I miss uh, how much I miss playing soccer. Like just oh yeah, with COVID and all. Like my law school team is just like oh. not playing. And, oh my gosh, I really need to get back to it. Yeah, so we play, and we're always looking for guys. Warwick at six thirty every Friday morning. We play. It's for a little hour. trek from Philly. <laughs> oh yeah, if you're not in Rhode Island, it is quite the haul. <laughs> Yeah, quite the haul. But yeah, I, I love playing soccer. I feel like between, like even hunting, like you sit there and your mind can wander. You've got nothing going on. You're just sitting there thinking about stuff. But soccer is probably one of the only times that my mind goes completely blank. It does not think about anything other than soccer. Like maybe like when there's a deer in front of me, I get all nervous or when I'm fighting a fish. But Playing soccer, my mind just completely goes blank. And, like, to me, it's so refreshing once a week just to decompress, forget about everything, because I can't hunt and fish every week. Um, so that so it makes it easy that I have this kind of routine in it. You know, trying to stay in shape as best I can now that I have an office job. Is your brother now doing it with you? He went two weeks ago and played. Um, so now that I'm working from home mostly, we could carpool, come back, you know, drop them off and stuff. But yeah. um, tomorrow I actually have to go to work for get a meeting in the morning. So we're not going to carpool. But, yeah, he went uh, not last week, the week before. But yeah, I'm trying to get him to it. He's trying to get back in shape. So trying to drag right. him to it. I thought I thought your brother was, like, um, also trying to get involved with, like, wildlife and stuff like this. Like, aside from, like, I know you guys do recreational stuff together all the time. And I'm just, like, I'm just – curious if you could talk a little bit about sort of like you know obviously being young it's sort of like uncles parents whatever like being involved but like now I mean for you it's still like family um, yeah you're around like what yes. does that like mean to you and stuff yeah it's great I mean it's like it's how I spend most of my time when I'm spending it with people other than like Allison or like the family parties so like when it's like when it's deer season I get to see my brother a decent amount i'll see my cousin a little bit more because he loves to hunt and then i'll see you know my best friends because it's like hey you want to go hunt together or after hunting maybe somebody gets a deer we all go over and hang out you know help process it and package it for the freezer so it's great because that's how you know we may not spend as much time with the older family now but we've kind of taken it on our own so now kind of we get to spend that time together you know as brothers and cousins and, and you know our best friends so that's how we spend a lot of our time now. This is a good metaphor for the, the Portuguese culture to sort of take up the mantle. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling good about it. That's it. We got to go out, Kayla. I'm with, you, I'm with you. There's always an open spot on the boat. Yeah, I just I'm a little bit concerned with with the worms. That's what gets me. That's that's oh. my hang up. No worms. We don't have to use worms. OK, I'm there.
Set. What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> no, I can't. Mother's birthday. And then Allison's birthday. It's a busy weekend for me. Okay. Um, I don't have any more questions, but Andrew, if you have any. Yeah, I don't think any really come to mind, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad, glad I could uh, chime in, put my two cents in, give a plug for wildlife and all the fun stuff we get to do as a biologist. So thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad our homeowner listeners now have uh, important tips to like make sure they can, you know, handle wildlife well. That's it. Y'all got learned. That's that's the most important thing. Thanks again, Dylan. No problem. Yeah, have a good one. You too. Thank you for joining us on this week's Palkus's Next Gen. This week's podcast was brought to you by Palkus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. You can find this episode on iTunes, palcas.org, Amazon Music, and any place where podcasts can be found. The Next Gen logo is designed by Silveira Designs. This podcast is produced by Aaron Homem, with post-production by Scott Donnell of Run and Drum Media and original theme music by Pedro H. Da Silva. 